Everybody, this is your host, Steve Dawson. Welcome to the One Life Podcast, Season 1, featuring Jim Burns, brought to you by Music Makers and Soul Shakers. This podcast is completely ad-free and listener-supported. Please check out all of our episodes at makersandshakerspodcast.com. And if you enjoy what we do and would like to support it, you can make a one-time donation or subscribe to our Patreon page. Just follow the donate button on the top right of makersandshakerspodcast.com. Now, just a reminder that what you're about to hear is unscripted on all counts. Jim Burns is speaking off the top of his head, and all musicians are improvising at all times. This was all performed live over two days at the Warehouse Studio in Vancouver and was recorded there by Sheldon Zaharko and mixed by Steve Dawson in Nashville, Tennessee. Guitars and pedal steel by Steve Dawson, drums and percussion by Gary Craig, bass and mandolin by Jeremy Holmes, and keyboards by Chris Jestrin. I'd just like to thank Jim Burns for agreeing to do a crazy project like this. And without further ado, here is episode three of One Life Season One with Jim Burns. So I find myself in uh, Boston, Mass, 1966, starting university, with uh, my head in the clouds, stars in my eyes. <laughs> well, that got fixed pretty soon. <laughs> Still, there was a, you know, the, the scene that was going on, uh, the folk scene, you know, like in the, over in Cambridge and Harvard Square. Club 47, you know, where, like I say, you know, Jim Queskin and this whole gang that I thought was so cool. And then, of course, uh, went in there and saw uh, saw Muddy at, at uh, Club 47. And then we talked about, uh, you know, East St. Louis. Met John Lee Hooker at Club 47. Was there the night uh, Junior Wells did a great show. And this album came out just a few years ago, uh, a live recording from that very night. At Club 47, I think I can even hear myself in the crowd on that record. But uh, meanwhile, you know that what was going on over there. Uh, Tim Leary was still teaching at Harvard, and uh, LSD was still illegal. 
And uh, so I ran into some pretty crazy people and started uh, making some bad decisions, <laughs> actually. Uh, school there that year, but uh, but really, you know, learned so much and uh, up and down, like I'm in the coast, and it was so different to being away from the Midwest, you know, the Midwest attitudes, and you know, so this was, uh, they're up in Boston, you know, there I don't know how many universities there are, but you know, Harvard's there, BU, BC, Emerson College, and just, you know, it was a whole world of ideas, and this and that, yeah, too many ideas. So actually, kind of, uh, I kind of got, uh, ooh, it got away from me a little bit, if you know what I'm saying. And so, uh, after a year there, I decided I, I went back, going to go back to St. Louis, where my folks were around, where I had a bit more, a little bit more grounded. And I uh, went to St. Louis University the next year, did a couple of really great plays. Actually, when I, like, this is, I, I should mention, when we were at BU. Did a uh, was in a, a production of Richard III uh, Shakespeare. Richard III in that was played by Paul Michael Glazer. Remember Starsky from Starsky and Hutch? <laughs> well, he, he was in grad school there. We had, I mean, an incredible bunch of people. Uh, Paul was there, and we became friends. We was in that Richard III with him. Of course, one of the recent graduates from the uh, theater school at Boston University was a gal from Florida named Faye Dunaway. <laughs> you heard about her, huh? And in fact, I had my first, I, got, I was an extra in the film, The uh, Thomas Crown Affair, with Steve McQueen and Faye, Faye Dunaway. It was my first time on a movie set. But like I say, my life kind of got away with me and uh, I wanted to go back to St. Louis to kind of ground myself again. And I did, but that didn't do too much good. I was back home once again. I ran into some, some good people and some, eh, not some of the best people, <laughs> and decided, uh, well, I was just gonna. I, I knew everything at this point. I left school and went out to Colorado to, to be with some friends. And we were living in Boulder. Uh, on and on we went. I mean, we made trips out to the West Coast of San Francisco and was just living this gypsy life until I got drafted into the U.S. Army. And uh, that, uh, well, things got pretty real at that point. I'm not going to get into the whole lot of details, but I did, was inducted into the Army there in St. Louis, 12th and Clark, the federal building, and uh, off to uh, Fort Leonard Wood for Fort Lost in the Woods, uh, down in Missouri there for basic training, and then off to... I'm not going to get just out of respect for... Uh, all the guys uh, that I knew and uh, the guys who came home and the guys who didn't come home. When I really got disillusioned was, uh, this was September 4th of 1969. Remember well because that's my dad's birthday and uh, we were all together, the platoon and a bunch of guys were together and it came through on the radio that Ho Chi Minh had died. Alright, so here we were in this war with uh, Vietnam. And myself and the, uh, our officer in charge, Lieutenant Stormy Gar, we were the only two guys in that room who knew who Ho Chi Minh was. And I really thought there was something really wrong with this, that these guys are risking their lives. They, they have no idea. I mean, when you're in the Army, you, you risk your life. You know, it's, it's, it's not about 
glory and it's not about uh, the United States. It's about, you know, hanging with your buddies and, and trying to keep your friends alive. But I realized that night that uh, the government didn't give a shit about us and was all a lie. And that's all I'm going to say about that, okay? So anyway, I, uh, I decided uh, to, when I started preaching some bad stuff about uh, questioning authority and uh, got myself into a bit of trouble. And I uh, was able to, uh, one day a friend of mine came and, uh, to visit me and uh, we went off base and that was the last the Army saw me for a number of years. I spent a couple of months uh, bopping around in the States, here, there, and everywhere, sort of on the run. And decided, okay, I wanted to get, and I decided then at that point I was going to go to Canada. And this, uh, I crossed the border October 26th of 1969. It was also the day that they had this uh, big uh, uh, demonstration that was going on in the States. It was also my, my parents' uh, 30th wedding anniversary that day. So. <laughs> Quite a, a date, okay, October 26, 1969. We uh, crossed the border at uh, Windsor, Ontario, where you go, actually you go south into Canada. A good bar bet there. Uh, Windsor is south of Detroit. Crossed the bridge and uh, now here I was, this guy with a crew cut and a couple of fishing rods in my 67 Buick. And oh yeah, I'm just going up to do this, that and the other. Wasn't Was a bit worried about getting across the border, but Right ahead of me was a, was a, a group uh, that were on their way to play uh, the Detroit Emeralds. They had a big hit called Showtime. Anyway, the, uh, the Canadian border guards were, were interested in what they had in their car, and they kind of tore these guys apart, and they just waved me through. And uh, so I got my way, made my way to uh, Toronto, where I had a, well, a couple of uh, phone numbers and a couple of addresses. Uh, from there was a whole war resistors, uh, Network and uh, and I had known a guy, a couple guys from St. Louis had had preceded me up to. We're living. One guy was living, working for the newspaper in Kitchener Waterloo, and then a couple other people were around. So I had some numbers and some places I knew. So I got to a and I stopped and I had something to eat on uh, on Spadina. Had an address of a guy on Huron Street. And Meanwhile, I walked by the the, uh, the Horseshoe Tavern on Queens. This is October of 69, and thought I'd st stop in and have a beer. And who, by any chance, was playing there that night but Stompin' Tom Connors. And uh, I thought, what the hell have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Stomping on that board, man, and I thought, gee, this is sure different than <laughs> back home. Anyway, that's... Uh, Started uh, met some musicians there in Toronto and got uh, involved with uh, got involved with uh, some really good people and with some really not so good people. I was playing with a guy. Uh, well, we had, uh, there was a, a literary uh, thing there. They had and they sort of, sort of an open mic, you know, jazz and poetry sort of thing that uh, that I was used to. And um, started hanging out there and uh, playing some songs and, and met a number of. Uh, some pretty cool people, some people that were, you know, ended up, a couple of them kind of saved my life, you know. Uh, authors and poets, and uh, through them uh, get, met uh, Michael Ondaatje and uh, met Maggie uh, Atwood. And, uh, it was uh, quite a hairy time. I and mean, one night this guy showed up, an incredible uh, presence this fellow was. He had come up from Philadelphia 
was a, an African-American guy, a guy named Archie, uh, about six feet nine, big crazy eyes, wearing this fur coat. And he played too, and we started, uh, we started playing together. We formed a duo, and uh, we played um, up and down in York, Yorkville there. They had a, there was a place called the, the Penny Farthing, right down the street from the riverboat. The Bod Pod. There was a whole mess of places that we kind of became semi-famous in, and we played. It was an interesting, uh, interesting time. We played some blues, but we also took uh, songs by Neil Young and Crosby, Stills and Nash, and and kind of made them our own. We 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 did some writing. We did a little bit of recording, and uh, we called ourselves God and I. <laughs> and who would say, you know, they which one of you is God? And we, what, you can't tell. And we played, uh, actually, we played uh, that, uh, that Mossport convention, uh, you know, like where the headliners were Procol Harum and uh, Sly and the Family Stone. And a lot of stuff going on, but, uh, and, you know, met some, met some really incredible people. But uh, Archie, who had originally been from West Virginia and had uh, made some records uh, with Buddy Dial. But Buddy, of course, uh, produced all those Joe Tex records and stuff and was... Uh, so, you know, he had been around, he had a group, Archie, Little Archie and the Majestics, and he had appeared on American television and everything. But uh, uh, Archie, God bless his soul, who became Ashid Hyman, but uh, he and I had quite a relationship, but he, uh, he at that time, had a terrible drug habit, okay? And although I never got, uh, I never started using, but uh, I lived the life of a heroin addict for almost a year playing with him and uh, it was a sort of a, a weird and dark time and I had uh, had moved into uh, well we lived at actually a 363 and a half Spadina which was two doors down from Grossman's and which is where I met you know and this is where uh, Downchild first formed the band and I knew all those guys back then Donnie and when Jane Vasey was playing piano with them and of course uh, Dave Woodward who also ended up moving out here to Toronto uh, to Vancouver around the same time. Anyway, it got to a point, I, I had gone and moved into Rochdale and uh, things were just kind of falling apart around me. And I had a friend uh, who I had gotten a letter from who was living in, outside of Euclid on Vancouver Island. I guess it was April of 1971. Remember drive-away cars where you could go to a car dealer and uh, del del and we got a car from a car dealer that we were delivered to another car dealer in, in Edmonton. It was a, a, a Dodge a, a Dodge convertible. We, we traipsed across the country up to Edmonton with that. And then we got another car, a Mustang, that we drove from Edmonton and delivered to Eagle Ford in New Westminster. That's how I got here to, to Vancouver that, uh, that spring. Spent a couple days in Vancouver, but then uh, headed for the island and uh, got out to uh, Euclid. And uh, we were living, you know, back in those days, everybody were living on the beach in a place, and, you know, just it was uh, quite a scene out there. In fact, there were a number of guys who were uh, sort of a cadre of basket cases from Vietnam that were living out in the woods out there. And I uh, did, did some, uh, started getting some odd, odds and ends work. Uh, went out once on a fish boat and decided this is not the life for me. <laughs> That's some crazy work, I'll tell you. I really have great respect for those guys. But uh, but I kind of got my health back and I got my head back together and uh, decided I didn't didn't quite know what I was going to do. I was uh, 
uh, living with a, a really wonderful woman. Uh, but we sort of were going our separate ways. We had gone down when the, they were going to start building the uh, the big the national park that, that you know was in Euclid and Tofino, that whole Pacific Rim Park. And they kind of came and to, to clean out all the you know we knew that when the RCMP started showing up uh, to tell people living in their shacks and stuff that it was uh, time to go. Well, I, I I knew that what was going to happen. It was inevitable. So we packed up and left. Uh, it would have been September of '71. And moved down island and uh, made some friends around the Victoria area. And then we broke up and uh, I went to live with a friend of mine out in Arrington right near Parksville there. And then on this was, you know, kind of did this and that once again. Played music, stopped and some started playing in some bars and uh, doing this, that and the other thing. And, uh, you know, making a little name for myself. And then uh, in February of 1972, February 26, 1972, but who's counting? I was uh, in a, a road accident on, on Vancouver Island, just outside of Parksville, where uh, I had, was helping us push a, a stalled truck off the highway in a big, terrible storm. And uh, I was pushed, I was, anyway, I ended up losing both my legs, uh, thrown up underneath this truck. I got hit from behind and um, pretty much bled to death. Uh, got to the hospital in Nanaimo maybe clo almost an hour later and uh, was not showing too many vital signs. But there was a doctor, Dr. Uh, Gavin Brown from Glasgow, Scotland. God bless him. Gave me a, a pint of plasma and I sort of started, my heart started to beat again and I sort of came to. And uh, anyway, three days later, I woke up in the hospital in Nanaimo and was informed that I had been in a very serious accident and that they had had to amputate both my legs. Well, there you go. I was <laughs> about six months short of my 24th birthday. I was 2,300 miles away from home. Uh, I knew a number of people, but I only had maybe two or three people I could actually call friends. And uh, I had maybe $30 to my name and a federal warrant out for my arrest in the United States. <laughs> What's a boy gonna do? Well, it took me, uh, it took me a while, but uh, I got my head around it. Here's a little story I met. Um, now, being an American, I, I, I knew nothing of this fellow, but there was a guy that was a janitor at the hotel that asked me if I, or at the hospital, excuse me, at the hospital, who had asked me if I knew who Douglas Batter was. Well, I didn't. Uh, but uh, so he gave me his book called Reach for the Sky. Douglas had been a, a member of the RAF and was kind of a, apparently a bit of an arrogant this and that, so and so. And had been uh, flying, uh, do, doing tricks with his airplane and crashed his airplane and lost both his legs. Uh, one of them remained his knee. I, both my legs were. were amputated above the knee, but he had lost both his legs, kept one knee. Anyway, and, uh, but through his persistence, uh, he was able to, to get back into the, uh, into the RAF and into, to, to fly again. This was, you know, and there's a movie, in fact, with Sir Kenneth Moore. He says, God, I wish I were up there again, sir, and it's all quite stiff upper lip and everything. And, uh, 
But oddly enough, so I, I, re- I started to read this book. They gave me this copy of this book. I thought, wow, this guy is really something. Now, he, he had gone and it was, was one of the heroes of the Battle of Britain when the, uh, that, uh, in 1940, the, the RAF, you know, saved it. You know, the Germans came to just annihilate, uh, you know, bombing raids and, and a handful of guys, the few as they were called, uh, kept the, uh, the Luftwaffe away. And he was one of the heroes of that, but then he was shot down and captured and put into a, you know, Stalag, uh, escaped from there, Twice he did that, and then finally uh, they put him in uh, Cold Kolditz, which of course is a notorious uh, uh, prisoner of war camp, and uh, and they took his legs away, so he couldn't escape again. At the end of the war, of course, he was uh, repatriated and went back to England and uh, was uh, knighted by the Queen and uh, or the I guess it would have been the King at that time. Anyway, he became uh, in, in quite a um, an advocate for for disabled people. Now, oddly enough, uh, after I had my accident, Douglas Batter was on tour, was on a tour. And when he was let back into the uh, RA, when they let him back in, they put him in the RCAF. He was, uh, they gave him all Canadian pilots. That that was his command. And their, uh, the 242 Squadron, and their memorabilia is in Comox. So he was, uh, he had, uh, his wife had died and he had a new, a uh, woman that he was with, and uh, he was on a tour, and uh, so taking her here, there, and everywhere, and and he had gone to Comox to to show her all this memorabilia, and he ran into uh, Doctor Gavin Brown, who had saved my life, on a golf course, and of course, uh, Batter being the great hero of you know everybody from the UK was you know he was a huge hero. Uh, Doctor Brown said, you know, I, this young fellow's in the hospital who just lost both his legs. And Douglas Batter came and visited me and was there for uh, maybe 20 minutes. But uh, changed, you know, I can't say it changed my life, but he certainly gave me hope. You know, he said, uh, people will tell you you can't do this and you can't do that. And don't believe a word of it. He said, I can tell by looking at you, young man, that you're capable of anything. Thank you, Sir Douglas Batter. It was a very important moment in my life very important so the next uh, six months I was in the hospital well I was in the hospital for about three months but then rehab this that and the other thing I finally talked to him I said you gotta I gotta I gotta go live in town and, and I'll come I'll come every day for my rehab just please let me get out of here and so I had gotten you know I was had a little place uh, in Nanaimo uh, with some friends and uh, was back to the hospital every day every day every day to, to get try to help my health back and get ready to get fitted for prosthesis and learn how to walk again and I had so finally it was it was September of that year of, of 72 uh, and my folks had come up uh, to visit and I had finally gotten this first pair of prosthetic legs and I thought man I have done everything right and I'm you know I'm healthy and I'm gonna do this and uh, so I put them on and we went out uh, in the car and went down to the Safeway down there in Harbor you know it's it's there's that shopping mall is still there in Nanaimo. And we were just going to go in and buy some groceries. So I went in there, and that may have been one of the lowest days of my life because, man, it hurt so bad. And I was so, it was so goddamn hard. And, uh, but I got back, and uh, I said, well, I'm going to get up and do this again tomorrow. 
And here we are, uh, what is it, uh, how many years later? <laughs> and I still get up every day and I go do it. episode of One Life. You'll find all the episodes up now for your enjoyment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.